Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come any near. Sorry. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey in place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the, the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they asked me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to this people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, 
The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go, unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand, and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favour in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbour, and any woman who, has, who lives in her house, for all silver and gold, jewellery, and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so, that, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send somebody else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, with which you shall do the signs. Uh, the YouTube algorithm often serves up to me clips from the show 
undercover boss. Uh, it, the premise is very simple. Uh, you have uh, the, the owner of a business, uh, perhaps it's a, a restaurant or a chain of restaurants, and the owner, she, she comes in and she works as a regular Jane, as a kitchen porter or something. And, and while she's there, she observes all sorts of things. Perhaps you might observe the, the manager is lying and cheating his way through things. Uh, but he, she meets other people who are struggling under really difficult circumstances, medical bills they can't afford or, or mortgage payments they can't make. But all the while, she's just a regular Jane. That's who she is. She can't do anything about it. But everything changes when, everything changes when she comes back in suited and booted, stilettoed more likely, and her true identity is revealed. At that point, she's able to do all sorts of things. It makes all the difference. She can fire the fraudulent manager. She can give thousands of pounds to pay the medical bills. And she can raise the, raise the wages or give promotions so that those mortgage payments might be made. Who she is, her identity makes all the difference to what she can do and the people who live under her. And it's the same with God. Who God is makes all the difference. It makes all the difference to what he can do and for us as we live under him. Who God is made all the difference for Moses. We'll see that it makes all the difference for the people of Israel on the Exodus. And it still makes all the difference for us today. And we're going to see that as we look at these verses from Exodus 3 and 4. Let's just set the scene again. Chapter 3, verse 1, we find Moses meandering around in Midian. He's been doing that for 40 years He's gone from being the prince of Egypt to the shepherd of Midian. His life now looks pretty, actually a bit messy, to be honest. He had to leave Egypt in disgrace. He kind of tried to do some sort of rescue, and instead he managed just to murder an Egyptian. He was rejected by uh, the Israelites, and his adoptive family were seeking to kill him. I wonder in that 40 years how often his mind just went back to that day where everything seemed to go wrong. How much he might have felt like he's, he's wasted the best years of his life. Wasted all the promise. He was drawn out of the Nile. Perhaps he was going to be the, the one. Well, it looks all wasted now. And spiritually, to be honest, he doesn't look that great either. We find out later in chapter 4 that he's, he's not really been living by the covenant because his own son hasn't been circumcised. He's, he's just kind of spiritually plateaued, it seems. Gone cold. Uh, until, until he sees this bush. Uh, that brings us to the first point I want us to, to take from these verses today, that the Holy One came down. Now, there's nothing surprising. There's nothing surprising about seeing a bush on fire in the wilderness. The thing that's surprising is the fact that the fire isn't burning the bush. The fire isn't dependent on the bush for fuel. So Moses goes to investigate, and from the bush, God speaks to him. God says, come no closer. Take your shoes off. This is holy 
ground. As God says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In awestruck terror, fear, Moses hides his face. God is so holy, even Moses, the one who writes the whole Pentateuch, even he can't approach God on his own terms. But God goes on to say this. I've seen, I've heard, I know the sufferings of my people. So in verse 8, he says, I have come down. He's come down so that he might lift them up, so that he might take them to the promised land, the land that's so good, that is so fruitful, that that there are so many flowers that the bees can't help but make so much honey that it's just flowing, that the grass is so luscious that the goats and the cows are making so much milk that it's, it's rushing through the land. That's what God has come down to do. The book of the Exodus isn't just here to give us an account of what happened in the past, how God acted. It's here to give us an account that shows us what our salvation is like. That's what it's written for. And so I wonder if you see here the same model of salvation that we experience as Christians. That the the Holy One of God, the Holy One, the Son, has come down that he might see and hear and know our sin and suffering so that he might, by his life and death and resurrection and ascension, bring us up, not just to a promised land, Israel, but to the promised new heavens and the new earth, flowing with all of God's love and presence and the healing of the nations. It's the same model, because it's the same God. Back to our text, though. God says that he's going to bring them up, and that means he's going to go to war with Pharaoh. He's going to go to war with the most powerful man in the world who rules the most powerful empire in the world. And I imagine as as Moses hears that, he thinks, well, this is very, very good. You'll win. And then verse 10. Come, says God, I will send you. Moses versus Pharaoh. And the rest of the chapter and all the way to uh, chapter 4 verse 17 is a conversation between Moses and God as Moses basically says, are you really sure you want to send me? He asks five questions. Uh, those, aren't, those are gaps for a reason. Um, I've just realized how silly that looks. Anyway, uh, there are five questions. The first one, Moses asks, is, who am I? The second one is, who are you? And that's really what the rest of this sermon is going to be about. But the next three questions go like this. We heard them. What if the Israelites don't listen to me? Well, God provides the signs and the wonders, the, the staff that becomes a snake, the hand that becomes leprous and is then clean, cleansed, and then water poured out to become blood. I'm not very eloquent, question four. Send someone that can speak better than me. God says, I make mouths. I make people deaf or mute or blind 
or so they can see, that's me. I'll be with your mouth. Question six, not really a question. Just send anyone else, anyone else. And God's response, I've already got Aaron coming to meet you. How gracious that he's so far ahead of the plan. Moses does go. Uh, But I want us to circle back to those first two questions. Uh, And in that first question, who am I? I want us to learn now that God's identity matters far more than who you think you are. God's identity matters far more than who you think you are. Moses' question is very understandable, isn't it? Who am I? We've just seen that his life isn't looking particularly impressive. Milling around Midian. It's a bit messy, to say the least. How's he meant to go up against Pharaoh? He doesn't look particularly gifted. He doesn't look particularly talented. What's his list of achievements on his CV? He doesn't even appear to be a particularly giant spiritual figure at this point. He faces a task that's been given him by God, but he looks at himself and thinks, I'm not up to it. I can't do it. And I just think that is how so many of us feel so much of the time. Not because we're being asked to fight Pharaoh, but just in our regular things that God is asking us to do. To speak for Jesus in our friendship groups, in the staff room, in the book group, over dinner. Choosing to fight the battle with sin, not to reach for another drink, not to download the gambling app again, not to make that Google search which we know only brings shame. God calls us to these things and yet we feel I'm not strong enough, good enough, big enough to do it. So how does God answer Moses? Actually, before we come to God's answer, what he actually says, can we just take a look at what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, right, let me just pump you full of hot air. (laughs) Well, let me give you a self-esteem boost. Do you know what, Moses? Actually, you're a very good shepherd. You've won best shepherd in Midian three years running. Oh, you've got a real heart for justice, Moses. Remember when you saved those girls from the shepherds? Remember, what you were trying to do in Egypt was all about justice. You're actually quite a good dad. Come on, Moses, you're a great guy. Not God's answer. God doesn't say you. God's answer, verse 12, is this. I will be with you. It's as if he's saying, my adequacy is more important than your inadequacy. My abilities are more important than your abilities. My gifts are far more important than yours. I am with you as you go to face Pharaoh. And if it's true for Moses, it is truer for us now as we're trusting Christ. As Jesus was ascending to heaven, he spoke to the church and he promised them, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Surely I will be with you. At Pentecost, from heaven, he sends his own spirit to dwell in every single Christian, to make his home there, the same one who raised him from the dead. So in every situation that we face as we fight sin, 
as we have to choose to keep loving when it's hard, to open our mouths, just to persevere, to hold on to Jesus when it feels too much to be able to do. He says, I am with you. If it was enough for Moses to face Pharaoh, it is surely enough for us. I do want to pause on this question, though, of of who am I? Because it just speaks so powerfully to our contemporary culture. Our culture is obsessed with questions about about self-identity. And the answer that it pushes forward is that we need to create our own identity, to form it ourselves, not to receive anything, but to create or achieve our identity. And Tim Keller kind of tries to explain what our culture is saying about identity in this way. He says, he's talking not from his, what he thinks is true, but trying to articulate what the culture says, that identity comes through self-expression, through discovering one's most authentic desires, just feelings, really, and being free to be one's authentic self. How, how are our identities formed? How does the culture say our identity should be formed? Well, basically, it's entirely internal and based on your feelings and desires. Forget about basing your identity on anything else, on, on all the things that people would have historically based their identity on. The nation, the family, religion, even biology. Get rid of all of that and just listen to the inside. Build your identity yourself based on your feelings. This is the air that we breathe. It is constantly being fed to us, and it is constantly being fed to our children. It is a never-ending stream that is catechizing our children, teenagers, young people, and us, to be honest, into believing that this is how identity should be formed. We've got to be aware of this because it isn't true. (laughs) Just as an example, uh, this isn't meant to to scare. It's just an example of what is really happening in our schools. A boy who's from our church family was asked to, the whole class was asked to put their head on a desk. Think about how you feel. Forget history, forget family, forget biology, forget God. How do you feel about your gender. That is who you are. That's just a class, just at school. It's not just our children that are being fed this, it is us as well. How much of our identity is based in what we achieve rather than what we receive? That's just another way of creating our own identity based in success or competencies or health or how our children are doing or the relationships, how things are going in the family. These things are so often our biggest identity formers and they're all about what we achieve, what we create rather than what we receive from God. And the consequences of this are exhausting for us all. Having to create and achieve an identity brings anxiety, and instability, because we don't stay the same. Our desires, our feelings don't stay the same. We vacillate, we move one to another. The things we achieve can be taken away in a flash. 
And so the identities that this creates are brittle. They're fragile. They'll smash like glass. They cannot bear the weight that we seek to put on them. They will betray us when they come into contact with reality. So our identity instead should be rooted in God, rooted in what he has done. God says to, Moses says to God, who am I? And God responds, I will be with you. God defines Moses' people. We see it in verse 10. He says, they're his children. The identity of God's people has not been achieved by themselves. It's been received. He says they are his beloved children. That's what their identity is. And it's ours too. For those of us that are in Jesus, it is ours too. Perhaps it's even in a deeper way. God says in John... To those who believe in his name, Jesus' name, he gives the right to become children of God. That is who we are, children of God. That is the identity that we receive as we come to Jesus, beloved children of God. And that is more important, more stable than anything we might feel about ourselves. It is certain, unshakable, and unbreakable. And it's unshakable and unbreakable because of the answer that Moses gets to his next question. Who are you? What's your name, God? This is our third, uh, third point that, from, the, from the text that I'd love us to learn. And it's all about God's name. That God says, I am who I am. Moses says, well, if I go to the Israelites, I say the God of our fathers has sent me. They're going to respond and say, well, what's his name? Who is he? And in verse 14, God responds with a very enigmatic, odd word. I am who I am. Yahweh, sometimes said Jehovah, but probably more properly Yahweh. I am who I am. God's answer to who am I is very different to ours. If someone asks me, who are you? Basically, every answer that I can possibly give is always relating to other people. I'm a father of Caleb and Josiah. I'm a husband of Louise. I'm a British citizen in relation to King Charles and everyone else that is. They're always related to other people. But God, God's answer isn't at all. It's self-referencing. He says, I'm me. It's not about anyone else. It's, it's self-referencing. And that has huge implications. I mean, it's also quite weird as a word because it turns out that grammatically this is not my strength. But the tense of the tense, past, present, future tense of his name can be all of them. So it could be in the past, I've always been who I've always been. Or in the present, I am who I am. Or in the future, I will be who I will be. But it's all of them at the same time. And so when you put all of that together, his name is telling us that past, present, future, his identity, his nature is fixed, unchanging, and rooted in himself. 
only in himself, independent from everything else. That has huge theological implications. There's a, there's a fancy word for it, Latin. It's aseity. And what it means is God is self-existent, independent from everything else in existence. He's the cause, the ground, the foundation of his own life and being. It's all rooted and flows from him. He is holy, holy and other to the whole rest of existence to us. You see, our existence is always dependent. It's dependent on food and water and gravity. It's dependent upon one another, on time and space and ultimately God. But that's not the same with God. God isn't dependent on anything in the created order. Nothing at all. In a moment, I'm going to tell us why that is good news. Because you might just think, oh, here's Nick getting overly excited about a theological nicety again. But it really matters. This is one of those things that all Christians through time, all Orthodox Christians through time have, have believed. You know, the Eastern Orthodox, they're in on it. The Roman Catholics, they're in on it. The Baptists who sign up to the London Baptist Convention, they're in on it. The Presbyterians, they're in on it. Like, we're all in on it. This is one of those classic things that we say about God from the Bible. And it's not just history and tradition that we're drawing this from. It's not just me making a big deal out of a little name. In fact, it, it is there in the text, even, even somewhere else. Like, take a look at the burning bush. God's revealing himself to Moses, to us, as in the burning bush. And what do we see in the burning bush? Fire. Well, that's, that's really regularly used as God's presence, isn't it? The, the pillar of fire that's going to lead people through the Exodus, the fire that's going to be on the mountain top when the Israelites get there. Well, fire, this is God's presence. But what do we discover about the fire? It doesn't burn the bush. The fire, the flame, the light, the life of the fire isn't dependent on the bush for fuel. The fire itself is independent. It's got life and heat and energy in and of itself, just like God, just like his name shows us. It's all here. Now, look, why is this good news? Why is it good news? Because the first time I came across these sorts, these sorts of ideas, like 10, 15 years ago, my answer was, this doesn't sound very good at all. This sounds really weird. This sounds like God isn't close to me. This sounds like God is really far away. Like he's so different from us, he's so distant from us, he's so transcendent, I can't, we can't have anything to do with each other. I thought it was kind of weird. But I was very fortunate to be taught and shown that actually it's, it's entirely the other way around. It's because God is holy, holy and other. It's because he's so transcendent, so different from us, that he can be the God we need. It's actually because he's like that that he can be the God that we uh, see in the scriptures. It's because he's so transcendent, because of his satiety. Let me give you three, three implications of, the, of his satiety, three good things. 
he isn't limited to time and space. God isn't limited to time and space, right? Because nothing in existence can impact him, can change him, can, can force him to go against his nature. He's free to do absolutely anything and everything that's fitting with his nature. So, actually, it's his transcendence that enables him to be the God who comes down, the God who sees and hears and knows everyone. Everyone who is his at every point of history. It's how he, as the the Spirit, can indwell every Christian from every point of church history all at once. He is not limited. He can be dwelling in each one of us now. You and I can only be in one place at one time. He's not bound by space and time the way we are. So he is able to be in it all and present to you so that he might know and see and hear you. His transcendence is what enables him to be personally present to us. His aseity, his transcendence, is how he can, number two, give life eternally. You think of mothers as they give birth to a child. Oh my goodness, is that a huge and ginormous energy-sapping thing? Not just the nine months, not just the labor, but everything that comes afterwards. It is extraordinary because it needs energy and effort and life. There are limits to how much life any one person can produce. Not so with God. Because he is not limited by any of those external factors. His life is bubbling up in and of himself. So through all eternity, the eternity that we're looking forward to, our life, all life, all of its goodness and and flourishing is going to flow from him. And there's never going to be any exhaustion. He's never going to run dry. Because the life bubbles from himself. That's how we can have eternal life. Because it's rooted in him. Number three, it means his words and promises are certain. Nothing, nothing can stop God keeping his promises. Nothing in all existence can get in the way of him doing what he promises to do. Nothing can knock him off course. Because he only does what is fitting to his nature, it gives us all sorts of certainty around his words. He can't lie. It says so in James. The reason why he can't lie? Because he only does what's fitting with his nature and he does what is true. He can't change. He can't be changed by anything or anyone else. It tells us that in in Numbers and Malachi and James. He can't change. Why? Well, because he's perfectly stable. He's perfect always. Nothing can change him. So he's not going to change his mind about you being his child. His covenant is certain and sure. 
Verse 15, he goes on, after saying, I am who I am to Moses, he says, tell them that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's reminding them that he is the personal covenant God who's come down, promised himself to them to say, I am your God, you will be my people. I'm going to be that God forever. I will keep my covenant with you. And it also means that our identity is sure. Do we see? Do we see that our identity is sure? Because if he says to us, in Christ, you are my child whom I love, nothing can knock that off course. He cannot lie. He will not break his promises. He cannot change. He will keep them all. That means our identity, not achieved by us, but received from him, is unbreakable, unshakable, because he is unbreakable and unshakable. This name that God has, the name Lord, sorry, well, the name Yahweh, it, doesn't, it appears 7,000 times in the, in the Old Testament, I think. But we don't ever see it written down as Yahweh or I am who I am. We always see it written down as capitalized L-O-R-D. Every time you see the word L-O-R-D in those little capital letters, try, please try, and take everything that we've just heard about God and put it on the page. Because that's what's being communicated. It's not just he's in charge, he's the Lord, though he is. It's that he's this God. He's this one. If you'd like to think a little bit more about kind of God like this, the, the aseity of God, the God that we have revealed to us in the scriptures, can I encourage you to take a look at this book? It's a book by a guy called Nick Tucker, who's a vicar down um, at Bishop Hannington Church in Hove. 12 Things God Can't Do. And the, the subtitle is Why It Can Help You Sleep. Essentially, why, is it, why it's good that there are things that God can't do. Um, it is a brilliant book. And it has all the things. There are, I'm sure there are all sorts of questions that are popping off in people's heads like, well, if God can't change and he can't suffer, how come the son became Jesus? And did he, if he died on the cross? All of those questions, he's got them in there. And we haven't got time in the sermon. You'll be glad to know. Um, take, do take a look at that book. But if you want to get to know this God, if you want to get to know this God, and so, in reality, get to know yourself properly, your true identity. Let me tell you how. There was a righteous man who walked around that promised land, the one that was meant to be flowing with milk and honey. And he got into a confrontation with some religious leaders. And they were particularly annoyed about what he was saying about Abraham, one of those men that God had made a covenant with. They were angry. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are saying all these things? The man said, you know, Abraham, he rejoiced when he saw me. And I went, what? what are you saying? You're, that was a thousand years ago. You're, you're what? You're 30? How can you say this? Are you Are you nuts? And Jesus turned to them and he said, Truly, truly.
truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Because he is the I am. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the Holy One come down that he might bring us up. He is the one who makes us children of God, unshakably, unbreakably children of God. And so if we want to know this God in all his transcendence and all his closeness. Get to know Jesus. And as we get to know him, we'll truly get to know ourselves as well. Let's pray. Who am I? I will be with you. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you kept that promise to Moses, to your people through the Exodus, and you keep that promise to us now. Lord, please help us to know you more. Amen.